Good morning. Good morning. Scripture reading today will be Genesis 22:1-12. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the lands of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from a from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Good morning. If you've accidentally closed your Bible, I'll ask you to open that back up. We are going to turn in just a second to this pivotal passage, um, but I do want to just say a few personal words first. And one is I just want to say thank you to Matthias for organizing a public reading of Scripture workshop yesterday mm-hmm. uh, that a number of the young men and uh, even some older men attended, and all of us learned a lot together, and we practiced together Uh, so that we might be more faithful in this great privilege and responsibility of reading God's Word. So thank you, Matthias, and thank you for all who who came out to that. I also want to say thank you to Stacy Gibson for another successful uh, women's Bible study, a discipleship class that, that many of you ladies have been a part of for the last few months, studying the book of Hebrews. What a rich... Uh, topic, subject matter to be giving yourselves to, and uh, we're just very thankful to Stacy for her, her her abilities and for her vision to uh, to want to see women discipled in this church. So stay tuned for announcements for another study that will come up this summer, Lord willing, and I uh, hope you can continue to be a part of that. Well, we've come today to one of the most beloved passages in all of Scripture. From the time we were introduced to Abraham, way back in chapter 11, we've been, we've been tracking with him along this path of 
of faith. And it's a path that has been full of highs and lows. Uh, There's been times when Abraham's been full of faith, uh, where he's been believing all of the promises of God. And there have been other times when Abraham has been full of fear, when he has doubted that God is able or that God is willing to, to do for him what God said he was going to do for him. But here in Genesis chapter 22, we see the man of God. We see the father of our faith on the heights of faith. This is uh, quite literally for him a mountaintop experience. And that's fitting because this will be the climax of Abraham's portion of this narrative. Um, You'll see very quickly that the, the spotlight is going to shift off of Abraham and onto his son, Isaac, uh, just here in the next couple of chapters. And so really, this is what we see here in 22, is Abraham going out on a high note. Now, because this story is so beloved and so beautiful, we have to slow down a little bit and you know roll it around in our mouths and savor it for a few weeks. And I think that will be especially appropriate as we head into Easter season. So next week, Palm Sunday, in preparation for our Good Friday service, which you heard about earlier, we're going to consider the the powerful and the prophetic words that Abraham utters in verse 8. The words that uh, Dick alluded to in his prayer. We're going to look at the Lord's provision of a lamb. And then the following week, uh, l- that's Easter Sunday, uh, Lord willing, we're going to consider the author to the Hebrews and uh, see his take on all of these events. And we're going to consider how uh, a resurrection faith will fuel our obedience into the future. So that's kind of where we're headed. Wanna, don't want to uh, spring any surprises on you. Um, I say this passage is beautiful, and it is, but it's also excruciating. If you notice, most things that are beautiful are the result of an excruciating process. You think of diamonds, for example. They're, they're beautiful, they're spectacular, but they're the result of high pressures and high uh, temperatures at at great depths over long periods of time. Uh, This past Wednesday in prayer meeting, we looked at Proverbs chapter 17, and one of the Proverbs that we uh, looked at was uh, verse 3, which says, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. Well, pure silver and gold, you know, are precious and beautiful. But the refinement process is not so nice. It's not so comfortable. In the same way, I think this proverb is saying, that the Lord is in the process of, of testing hearts, our hearts. He, he, he's always doing this. And it's a process that is almost always painful. It's sometimes excruciating, but it always results in great beauty when, when the Lord's in it. In this passage today, we we have the most excruciating test that Abraham will ever face. It's it's the 
It's the most excruciating that he could ever face, and we get to see the beautiful result of it. And I hope this will help us uh, when, by looking at Abraham. I think it's going to help us to face our own times of trial and testing and, and the difficulties that arise in our own lives. So as we work through this passage, I want us to, uh, to think about it in terms of some things about the Lord's testing that are true, that emerge from this text and that we can uh, expect in our own lives. And the first thing is that dear ones are tested. I'll, if you're taking notes, I'll give you all of these up front and then we'll circle back and revisit them. Dear ones are tested. And then dear things are targeted. And finally, we'll just want to see that the dearest one testifies. So first, let's consider this truth about the Lord's testing, and that is that dear ones are tested. Now, the narrator tells us right off the bat, right from the get-go, that this is a test. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham. And this prepares us ahead of time to hear the very difficult thing that he demands of his servant Abraham. You know, the narrator is, is kind of preempting us. He's trying to make it so that we don't even go down the path of questioning how a holy and a righteous God could ever demand such a wicked thing as child sacrifice something that the Canaanites were becoming famous for or infamous for. They, they would sacrifice their own children uh, in worship for their pagan deities. And it's a horrifying thought to, to think about how Yahweh, how the Creator God, could ever demand His people to do something like that. And you'll notice, I hope, that the theological question that pops into our minds is not of any interest to our narrator. I hope you notice that. And the reason is because it misses the point entirely. The point is that this is a test. If Abraham fails the test, there's going to be no child offered on an altar. And as we will see, I hate to give things away right from the beginning, but I'll, I'll at least tell you this. If Abraham passes the test, then there's going to be no child offered on the altar. You're missing the point of the passage if you read it in such a way that God has to prove himself to you. God is not here in this passage being tested. Abraham is. Now, of course, the, the narrator's assurance to us that this is just a test is something that only we benefit from. There was no narrator right beside Abraham narrating these events for him. No, in real time, as this is playing out, Abraham is not privy to the same information that we are. He, he doesn't know that he is being put to the test. And that would certainly skew the results if he knew that right away. If some guy was in his ear telling him that right from the beginning. You know, when I was a kid... In, in school, uh, I imagine this is probably similar to, to your experience, we had regular fire drills. And for me, I don't know, they seemed more regular than they actually probably were. 
It seemed like it was all the time, but maybe they were only once or twice a year. You, you never knew when they were coming, so you'd be sitting at your desk, you'd be working away or talking away, when all of a sudden you'd hear that fire alarm and it would ring throughout the building. It was quite loud and quite unsettling. And then you'd, you knew what to do at this point. You'd have to quietly get up. You'd line up in single file. You'd silently walk out the nearest exit of the building um, to that designated spot. And then your teacher you know, counts you and touches you on the head and makes sure that the whole class was there. It was a whole, it was a whole procedure. And I, I just said, you never knew when they were coming, but every once in a while you did, because there, maybe there was some well-positioned kid whose parent was a staff member or something, and, and it would come down the, the grapevine that there was going to be a fire drill. This was a fire drill day. There's always kind of buzzing about that ahead of time. So, so the kids would be ready when it came. And needless to say, advance warning doesn't make for a very good fire drill. It's, it's, it loses something of its uh, purpose when, when you know what's going on. In the real world, of course, situations come at you in real time. And we don't get the benefit of knowing right from the get-go. We don't hear these radio uh, broadcasts, you know, those, those beeps that you hear on the radio every now and then. This is um, that tells you that what is coming, what you're hearing, is a test. No, the Lord is looking for our genuine response. And at the same time, as we say that we don't know when these things are coming, at the same time we can, we can uh, heed what Peter warns us about. And he says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, as, as though something strange were happening to you. And this isn't that exactly how many of us respond to trials, with, with the same kind of shock and, and horror as the young teenager who's in the throes of puberty, and uh, lots of crazy things are going on with his body, and maybe his parents chickened out and didn't have the talk, and so now he's like, something strange is happening to me. That, that's not just a, a young teenager's experience. That seems to be what many of us are like whenever we, uh, we get hit with difficulties. We think something strange, something out of the ordinary is happening. And, and we think that all of this is abnormal. So that, you know, it, it just seems to us like all, all of these trials, all of these difficulties are foreign, that, that they're alien and they need to be removed from us as soon as possible so that we can get on with our regular lives. We think our regular lives don't involve any kind of difficulty. And isn't this how we frequently pray? We pray along the lines of, Lord, remove this from me. And, and the assumption is I, so that I can get on. But the Bible makes very clear it's crazy why we continue to think this way because the Bible is explicitly clear about the fact that trials are normal. They're the major part of our regular scheduled Christian lives. Testing, friends, is normal. Another mistake that Christians make in the midst of trials and difficulties is to think that we are experiencing these excruciating things because God is angry with us. 
because God hates us. I realize we probably don't say that. We don't say out loud that God, you know, is rubbing his hands together and he wants the worst for us. But we think it, don't we? And and the way that we are bitter and complain kind of testifies to the fact that we believe that God is against us when these difficulties come into our lives. And we need to understand that our instincts at at that point are 180 degrees out of whack. The opposite is actually the case. God disciplines those that he loves. As the author to the Hebrews says in chapter 12 of that epistle, he says, don't forget the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor grow weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. And I want to remind you from this passage right here in Genesis chapter 22, under the first point, that dear ones are tested. Ones who are dear are tested. And before you can see this in your own case, maybe, maybe it'll be easier for you to see it in the case of other people. Abraham, uh, for example. Verse 1 says that God is testing Abraham. Well, who is Abraham? You are in a good position to answer that question because we've been studying the life of Abraham for the last 11 chapters or so. So you, you understand, don't you, that Abraham is God's chosen He is someone who God has set his love and his affection on. And that is based on nothing in Abraham, as we've sung about ourselves. It's not in Abraham. It's not like God looked down over the corridor of time and saw that Abraham was a a good dude and so decided to recruit him for his task. No, God looks out and he sees that Abram was an idolater, that he was a pagan, that he worshipped the moon. And it was no other explanation other than the sheer mercy of, and grace of God that God called him and set his love and affection on him and called him out of his country, out of his land, out of his background and was leading him into a, a land that he was going to give to him as an inheritance. The Lord, you, you remember, has made exceedingly great and precious promises to this Abraham. And now, at this stage of the game, Abraham is in possession of some of those promises. He's in the possession of a son, this hundred-year-old man. He's had a miracle boy born to him and Sarah in their old age. And along the way, Abraham has been richly blessed by God. He, he has massive holdings. And anyone who is even remotely connected to Abraham has been blessed in the overflow of all that God has blessed Abraham with. The point here, friends, is who is Abraham? He is the beloved man of God. And consider even something uh, as basic as his name. 
you see this in the text. And God calls out and he says, Abraham. He's calling him by name. And I think it's worth remembering that this is a name that God himself has given to Abraham. We, we, we're allowed to give names to the things that we, that we love uh, that have been given to us by God. You, you name your son. You name someone who is your own possession, your own beloved. And this is precisely what God has done in the case of Abraham. And all of this helps us to understand that Abraham is dear to God. And yet Abraham is tested. So we conclude that dear ones are tested. Hebrews 12 goes on to say and explain that hated ones, look at, come at this from another angle, if you're a hated one, you're going to be ignored. The Lord, the Lord has real, no real interest in you. You're, you're, you're going to be left untested. Uh, that passage says, essentially, bastard children are left undisciplined. If you're undisciplined, you're, you're not a true child of God. You're not one of God's dearly beloved. Brothers and sisters, I, I trust this will be a helpful reminder to you this morning that if you are experiencing any kind of difficulty or testing or trial, then that is a sign, contrary to what you are tempted to think, that's a sign that you are dearly loved of the Lord, that you are indeed his child, that he loves you with an everlasting love, that he is personally invested in your holiness. Dear ones, and only dear ones, are tested. So in the midst of much uncertainty and much perplexity, we can be certain of this, and I hope that you are, be certain of his great love for you. I was, I was reminded, uh, just as um, Glenn was leading us through that responsive reading, and as Rob was exhorting us in some of his, uh, his comments, that passage out of Romans, the, the confidence that we gain, that we're that we can make it through any kind of trial that's thrown at us, and all of them were thrown at us, whether it's uh, darkness or life or death or angel or principality, no matter what, that it's not going to, it's not going to destroy us. Why? What, what's the confidence to make it through those difficult waters? It's that we are loved by God. Who's going to separate us from the love of God? We're more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. As Charles Spurgeon famously said, God is too good to be unkind. He's too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. So when you, you, you're not probably going to be able to figure out what the Lord is doing and intending through all of the, the circumstances, the difficult, excruciating circumstances of your life. But here's what you can trust. You can trust that God loves you with an everlasting love and that he is concerned about your holiness. And he's going to bring you through whatever it is that you're dealing with. Now let's seek to understand a second thing about the Lord's uh, testing, which is that dear things are targeted. 
dear things are targeted. In verse 2, we, we discover what the Lord is commanding after he calls out to Abraham. He says, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. That's the test. That's the test. I mean, that's the daddy of all tests. And speaking of daddy, that's really the point here. Abraham's testing gets right to the heart of the issue. Do you see that Abraham is tested in the area that is nearest and dearest to his, his own heart? The point is that in testing, dear things are going to be targeted. The Lord's tests are designed to draw out what is dearest in you. You you can see this, I think, in how the Lord sets it up with Abraham. So look again at verse 2. And you'll notice that there are three descriptors of Isaac, who who is set up here, of course, to be the, the sacrificial victim. God says, Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Now, it's not as if God needs all of these descriptors to kind of narrow down to, to which son he's talking about. No, of course, we're talking about Isaac. But do you see what God's doing? He's heaping up all of these descriptors to really target the issue. Isaac is the beloved son. He's the only son. He's the son of the promise. He's the long-awaited son. The question is, is Abraham going to be willing to give up his beloved son in sacrifice to God? It's interesting that the, the language that the Lord uses in this command, in this test, it's, it's reminiscent of the language that he used when he first called Abraham back in chapter 12. Do you remember? I know it's a long time ago now. But do you remember when the Lord called Abraham? He said things like, Go and to a land, a land that I will show you. Well, in verse 2, we have something very similar. Not identical, but very similar. You have the words take and go to the land that I will tell you. So in the first case, the issue was, was Abram, he was called Abram back then, was he going to separate himself from all that was known to him and all that was dear to him? Is Abraham, is Abram going to be willing to leave his land, his family, his culture, his religion to believe the promises of God? Well, decades now into his Christian life, if I can speak in those terms, that remains the issue. Is Abraham willing to separate himself from everything that is dear to him in obedience to God and in complete trust? in the promises of God. In the first case, at the beginning, he's going to have to believe God's bare word before anything, before he sees anything. 
He has, in that case, only promises. In this case, Abraham has already come into some of these promises. He's being made into a great nation, as we've seen clearly. And he has received the son that has been promised. The question is, will Abraham continue to trust God to fulfill all of his promises when he's asked to hand over the fulfillment? When, when God's command seems to conflict with God's promise, will Abraham still trust and exercise faith and obey? And I don't know if you've been in the Christian life for one year or five or ten or twenty-five or fifty, but I do know that the issues that were at stake in your conversion are the same issues that are at stake in your life today. For example, what was necessary for you uh, to become a Christian? Well, among other things, there's lots, of course, that we could say there, but as far as it concerns you, you had to repent of your sins and you had to trust fully in Christ. Repentance and faith were absolutely crucial to come to Christ in the first place. And, so let me ask you this, what will be necessary for your Christian life today and this week and this month and this year? And the answer, friends, is the same. Repentance and faith. It's an, it's an ongoing, it's a continual turning from sin and turning towards Christ in faith. You don't really move on if you get what I'm saying. In addition, when you came to Christ, initially it was necessary for you to let go of everything that you were, as the song says, everything you once held dear and built your life upon. And do you remember back to that time, the Lord Jesus Christ became for you your deepest joy, your deepest desire. You wanted nothing else. You were ready to forsake everything else and let go of it so that you could cling to Him. It was necessary. You couldn't cling to Him unless you released your death grip on all of your idols. And, and He wouldn't have it any other way. You remember what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Pretty harsh. Pretty harsh. But Jesus is there targeting the real issue. And my point is that that's not just the issue at the beginning of your discipleship, but throughout. What the Lord is going to continue to target then as the subject of all of the trials that he brings into your life, because he loves you, are the things that are dear to you. The things that are competing to be dear to you. I don't know if that's what that is for you, whether it's your health or your comfort your finances, your marriage, your reputation, your children. This is why this is so relatable, is because this strikes at something that is dear to, to all of us. Our, our closest relationships, our, our deepest loves, this is, this is what's targeted in the trial. Um, I'm 
reminded of, uh, as I was thinking through this passage uh, this week, uh, the lyrics of an old hymn kept coming to mind. So I, I looked it up and, and just did a little bit more digging. It's a William Cooper hymn. It's uh, Cooper, but it's written Cowper. Uh, he was a contemporary of John Newton, and they wrote a lot of uh, hymns together. Uh, wonderful hymn writer, but um, if you know anything about Cooper's life, he struggled with like massive depression for a lot of it. Um, he lived for for over 20 years with a a married couple, the Unwins, and uh, the the husband of that couple was a pastor. And uh, but he died, and uh, he fell off of his horse, and and he died, and. And so his widow, um, John Newton one time was coming to visit him, his widow, to offer his condolences, and he encouraged the widow and William Cooper to, um, to move to the town where he was a pastor. And they did that, and they had a great um, friendship and working relationship. But during that time, Mary Unwin, the widow, Uh, became seriously ill and she was at the verge of death and this plunged Cooper once again into uh, a real depression and in the midst of that depression he penned a wonderful old hymn called Oh for a Closer Walk with Thee and about Mary Unwin Cooper said this she is the chief of blessings I have met with in my journey since the Lord was pleased to call me. Her illness has been a sharp trial to me. Oh, that it may have a sanctified effect, that I may rejoice to surrender up to the Lord my dearest comforts the moment he may require them. And such a thought led to the penning of this fourth verse of, Oh, for a closer walk with thee, Cooper. This is what was ringing in my mind the dearest idol I have known, what, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from its throne and worship only thee. That's the, that's the issue at your conversion, and that is the issue in all of your Christian life. And, and God, because he loves you, is going to help you tear that potential idol, that idol, that dear thing from the throne and worship only him. And so you should, you should be prepared for that. You should expect uh, difficulties in those areas and you should not buck against the Lord when he begins to meddle because this is a gracious and a good thing that he's doing. Let's look finally at the third point and that is the dearest one testifies the dearest one testifies that will become a little bit clearer once we figure out the rest of the story and what we have here in the rest of the narrative is a it's a really slow even even the telling of this story is excruciating you can you can see that the narrator slows the action right down And it looks like it's going to go speedily because what we have in verse 3 is a note about Abraham's immediate obedience. 
And we've seen this from Abraham time and time again, that uh, on his best days, he is immediately obeying. And once again, he is rising early in the morning and doing all of this work. But here the narrator slows it right down and we are treated to all of the, even the mundane details that he uh, saddles his donkey, he takes two of his servants, he takes, of course, his son Isaac, he cuts the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place that God had. So they begin this journey. And these details, these slow details are just helping us feel something of the angst that Abraham must have been feeling. But you'll notice that besides all of these slow details, the the narrator doesn't talk at all about how Abraham is feeling, what his emotions are at this time. We can only imagine, of course, what they would be. But what is the most important thing for the narrator? This is a clear uh, a clue for us. This thing should should be the most important thing for us too. And it's not about how we're feeling. It's not about all of our emotions and all the rest. Here's the most important thing. Abraham's obedience. Abraham obeys. And and you get a you get a clue right from the beginning that that Abraham is the willing servant. He says in ver- at the end of verse 1, here I am when God calls to him. And that's always the response of a, of a humble servant. Here I am. You'll remember this from Samuel, I'm sure. Here I am. I'm, I'm ready to do whatever it is that you're asking of me. And now God has asked him to do the hardest thing that he could ever be asked to do. But he sets out to do it immediately but this takes a long time this is a a journey of something like 45 miles from where he is to where he needs to go up in the mountains of Moriah it's a it's at least a three-day journey Um, you, you notice that don't you the third day just details are amazing and we'll get to explore some of these things hopefully in subsequent weeks. But in Scripture, that period of time is always significant. It always seems to be the period of preparation. This is a, a, it takes three days to, uh, to get ready to do something and to be, uh, to be anticipating it, it seems. And here we have the same thing, three days. And, and again, you can just imagine... Uh, the anguish, uh, but at the same time, you can you can see Abraham's resoluteness. Three days is also enough time to uh, quote come to your senses and to turn around and say, "There's no way I'm doing that." And so, this is not just uh, immediate obedience, but this is prolonged obedience, going in the same direction over a period of time. There's time to back out, but Abraham is not backing out. And, and the, dra- the drama just increases when he gets to the place. The Lord shows him the place that he has in mind. And verse 5, he says to the young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. 
There's so much here, friends, that this is why we need to spend another week or two in it. So I hope you, I hope you understand why we're going to have to circle back to some of these things. That's just, that's juicy stuff that I, I hate to even pass over right now. But they, uh, he and Isaac um, go on. Isaac is old enough to, to carry wood on his back. He, he himself is carrying the wood for the fire. But Isaac is now starting to piece some things together. And you see something of like the cute innocence here. Verse 7, Isaac says to his father, um, My father. And Abraham says, Here I am, son. What is it? And Isaac's piecing this together. He's like, Okay, we've got the, the fire, and I've got the wood here on my back. But, but where's the lamb? We're missing something. We're missing something like really important here. I don't know, if Dad, if you've thought about this, if it just slipped your mind or if you've got some other plans, but something's not right here. And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Again, if you can, if you can stand it, uh, can you, can you come back next week and we'll explore that a little bit? <laughs> oh, that's good. But they come, the, the drama just increases uh, all the more. Verse 9, they come to the place that God's shown them. Abraham builds the altar, he lays the wood down, and he binds Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Verse 10, Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Do you, you see how the narrator has built this up for us? We're at the moment, the critical moment. The knife is in the air. And then the angel of the Lord calls to him from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham! And he says again, typically, here, here am I. The angel says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Do you see that the, the test is over? And the Lord has determined that, that Abraham is not withholding that there is something that's even more dear to Abraham than his son, the son of the promise, and that is the promise giver, that the Lord himself is the dearest. And now it's, it's, it's the Lord's turn to testify about the faith of Abraham. And, and when God says, you understand this, don't you? When God says, now I know, Again, don't let your theology trip you up. This isn't like God has just come, he just realizes this now. No, he is omnipotent. He's everything that we've sung. He is all wise. He knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. <clears throat> but it has been demonstrated. That's the point of the, what the narrator is saying. It, this is played out in real time. And God now declares that it's demonstrated by Abraham that he has, he's willing to give up his son, his only son, the dearest one, the one who is feared the most, is testifying now about Abraham. 
And friends, that is what, that's what we need. We need God himself to, to testify about us, that, that we are faithful, that we uh, have passed, that we have done well, that we are good and faithful servants. And we expect on that great day to hear the testimony of the dearest one. We want to be approved by God. And, and the way to do this, a key word here is fear. And I, I hope I haven't been misleading you all along because I've been saying things over the last number of chapters that, that fear and faith are incompatible. You're, you're not going to be able to have faith in what, that God's going to deliver on what he's promised if you are fearful about the things that you see. That's going to get in the way of your faith. But I, I need to maybe amend that a little bit, if, if I can beg your pardon. Okay, Fear is not the enemy of faith. Fear, we're seeing, is essential to faith. The only question is, what kind of fear are we talking about? And the kind of fear that is essential to faith is fear of God. God says, for now I know that you fear God. And what is that fear demonstrated by? A willingness to, to give up everything and anything in order to obey God and love Him and worship Him and be devoted to Him. Fear, fear is, not, uh, it's, it's not only like shaking in your boots. Although, as I've said before, when it comes to God, that actually is not far off the mark. We have to understand who all that God is and all that He has done. And that ought to produce in us a, a holy reverence, the kind of reverence that will lead to our obedience, where we, we, will, we will do everything that He says that we ought to do. But fear also leads to this this intimacy of, of knowing God and being known by God, where he becomes our, our dearest thing, our dearest one. He, he's the, the dearest uh, part of our lives, and, and we are, are pursuing only him and a relationship with him, and the knowledge of him is our, is our deepest joy. And nothing in this world is going to get us sidetracked from knowing Him and loving Him and worshiping Him. And this is why, this is why God is so kind to, to help us through testing to uh, let go of all of those obstacles and those distractions so that we can have Him and be approved by Him. I hope you can see, brothers and sisters, that this is the grace of God. This is not as many liberal scholars and many enemies of the faith would point to a passage like this and say, do you see your God is a monster? The exact opposite of that is the point of this passage. Your God loves you, and he loves you so much that he's going to bring trials and testing into your life so that he is your dearest desire and deepest joy. Um, may it be so by God's grace.